0: This podcast of On Being is brought to you by Audible.com, where you'll find over 150,000 audiobooks to choose from, including titles by scientists we've had on this show, like Mario Livio and Jenna Levin. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com onbeing. Parallel realities and the deep structure of space-time sound like science fiction, but these are matters of real scientific inquiry. Lord Martin Rees is a cosmologist and astrophysicist who spends his life contemplating such things. And I'm strangely comforted by his insistence that we ourselves, human beings, are the most complex cosmic phenomena by far. Though, Martin Rees says, we're probably not the apex of evolution. He points at philosophical frontiers and ethical frontiers that citizens and scientists, religious and non-religious, must enter together and with humility all around.
1: If science teaches me anything, it teaches me that uh, even simple things like an atom are fairly hard to understand. And that makes me uh, sceptical of anyone who claims to have the last word or a complete understanding of any deep aspect of reality.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Martin Rees holds the honorary title of Astronomer Royal. From 2005 to 2010, he was president of Britain's Royal Society, the august scientific fellowship to which Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, and Stephen Hawking have all belonged. And he drew criticism from some scientists and atheists when he accepted the 2011 Templeton Prize. Full disclosure, this program receives John Templeton Foundation funding for some of our shows on science and religion. The Templeton Prize honors an exceptional contribution to affirming life's spiritual dimension. Interestingly, though, Martin Rees is atheist. And as I learned when I sat down to talk with him in 2011, he has little interest in science-religion battles or science-religion dialogue per se. He's much happier reflecting on unexpected discoveries in his lifetime and bringing these into relief as a subject for common life. So, uh, tell me when and how uh, cosmology captured your imagination. Can you trace that?
1: Well, it didn't happen early. I um, decided I wanted to do some kind of science. And uh, by a series of lucky accidents, actually, I ended up doing astronomy and cosmology. There were lucky accidents in two respects. Uh, First, um, I was fortunate to get a very charismatic uh, advisor and the second reason I was lucky was that this was uh, way back in the um, mid-1960s, and that was the time when the subject was just opening up. The first good evidence that there was a big bang mm. was coming online, uh, the first evidence for black holes, etc. So it was a very good time to be entering a subject, because when the subjects knew, the experience of the old guys is at a heavy discount, as it were, and... Uh, it's easy for a young person who's committed to make an impact fairly quickly.
0: And, you know, one of the ways you talk about one of the a focus of your uh, your scientific passion, one of the things that occupies you is this deep structure of space and time, which is wonderfully intriguing language. And. And that's also what you mean by the deep structure of space and time is is something even that uh, amidst those great developments of the 1960s, no one had any idea, right, of many aspects of this.
1: Right. Well, one of the things we've learned is that in the universe there's Obviously, stars and galaxies which are made up of atoms, which, as so far as we know, are just like the atoms we could study in the lab. But there's also some stuff out there which is very important because it exerts a strong gravitational force, uh, which is a kind of particle which we don't know about and haven't mm-hmm. yet discovered here on Earth. So the nature of the so-called dark matter is a big issue for physics and for astronomy at the moment. But there's also another rather deeper mystery which is related to the nature of space itself. There's evidence which has come about in the last 10 years or so that even empty space, when you take away all the dark matter and all the atoms, still exerts a kind of force. It exerts a sort of push or tension Mm. on everything. And this therefore means that... uh, Even empty space has a kind of structure, and we don't understand that at all. In fact, uh, uh, most of us would guess that uh, empty space does have a structure, but on a tiny, tiny scale, a scale a billion, billion times smaller than an atomic nucleus. And we would have to understand uh, space on that tiny scale to understand its structure. Uh, There's fascinating ideas, and one of the fascinating ideas is that if you could chop up space on a very tiny scale, you would find that what we think of as just a little point in space is actually a tightly wrapped origami of extra dimensions. Mm, We're right, used to the right. idea of three dimensions of space, backwards and forwards, left and right, up and down. Uh, but uh, if you looked at space on a tiny scale, you would find evidence for extra dimensions. Mm-hmm. The analogy is often given of this is that if you look at a... Um, hose pipe from a long way away, you think it's a one-dimensional structure or a line. But yeah, if you get close yeah. up to it, you realise it's really uh, uh, got a thickness and is a three-dimensional structure. Likewise, we think that on this very, very tiny scale, there may be extra dimensions over and above the uh, three that we're familiar with. And uh, that indicates the mathematical challenge of trying to understand space at the very deepest level.
0: It's a mathematical challenge and it's also an imaginative challenge, right? I mean, it almost uh, exceeds the capacities of human imagination to think about. Um,
1: well, of course, um, uh, the human imagination needs to be channeled by experimental observations. Yeah. And the trouble here is that we don't really have enough observations. But uh, just to add a footnote to what I just said, mm-hmm. um, uh Many people believe that there are these extra dimensions which we don't perceive because they're rolled up very tightly. There's another idea uh, which is even more fascinating, in my opinion, which is that uh, um, there may be extra dimensions which are not rolled up. And indeed, this leads to the fascinating idea that there may be um, other universes, other regions of space-time, which are separate from ours um, because... uh, they're embedded in a common higher dimension. Mm -hmm. To give an analogy of this, I mean, if you imagine um, a whole lot of uh, bugs crawling around on a big sheet of paper, uh, they may think of that as their sort of two-dimensional universe. They can just go in in two directions on it. And then if you imagine another sheet of paper parallel to the first one and other bugs on that, then they think they're in a separate Mm two-dimensional space and they're not aware of the third dimension, so they wouldn't know that there's the other parallel sheet. And some people think that one dimension up, uh, we are in that sort of predicament. They think that uh, um, there may be, as it were, another universe, maybe just a few millimetres away from ours, but if those millimetres are measured in a fourth spatial dimension and we're imprisoned in R3, we wouldn't know about it.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, cosmic origami and what we don't know with astrophysicist Martin Rees. You've also said that uh, that in addition to the cosmic scales and the microworld, there's a, a third frontier of the very complex and you include very interestingly uh, human beings uh, in that on that frontier of the very complex, the most well, complex uh, entities we know of.
1: Well, indeed, I think uh, <laughs> uh, even even a small insect is much more complicated than a star, because a star is a huge ball of gas, and it's crushed by gravity, and is so hot that uh, all chemicals are broken down into their atomic constituents. There's mm-hmm. no complex structure, whereas even the smallest insect has a layer upon layer of structure, proteins, cells, and all the rest of it. And so the smallest living thing is indeed more complicated uh, than a star, and also, to go back to your point, um, everything about humans is very complicated. In fact, uh, it, it may seem ironic that I can talk with some confidence about uh, uh, a galaxy a billion light-years away yes. and, uh, and what it's made of, uh, whereas uh, and I would hope that uh, I can give you evidence so you take what I say seriously. Mm. On the other hand, you're very foolish if you take seriously what anyone tells you about diet or care, mm. because... Uh, um, they change their opinions, as you know, every year. Uh, It's not that the people working in those fields are less competent. It's that anything to do with uh, uh, humans and their behavior and their environment is uh, far more complicated Hmm. than uh, the cosmos or the micro world.
0: I I want to ask you about something that you said. I want to understand this better. You've said that if Newton and Einstein are icons of unification, Darwin is is the icon of this complexity that we're discussing. You've also said that Uh, The Darwinian pace of evolution and extinction is speeding up. What do you mean by that and how how do you uh, measure that? I've never heard anyone say that.
1: Well, of course, uh, we know that uh, um, humans have evolved by uh, a Darwinian process of natural selection over a time of um, nearly four billion years since the Earth was young. But one important thing which we learn from astronomy is that the time lying ahead is at least as long as the time that's elapsed up till now. The sun is less than halfway through its life, Uh, the earth has uh, um, billions of years ahead of it, and the universe may go on forever. And I think this is very important uh, to everyone because this makes me very sceptical about any claim that humans are, in any sense, the culmination of evolution.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We are, of course, the most complex organism that has Evolved, <clears throat> But since the timeline ahead is just as long, uh, then uh, post-human evolution here on Earth and far beyond uh, could be far more complex and wonderful uh, than uh, the biosphere we have here and of which we are a part. Hmm. But the other point which uh, strengthens this claim that we are not the culmination is that any future evolution... Uh, of humans is not going to be determined by uh, natural selection on the very slow time scale that led to uh, our own emergence from uh, the common ancestor of us and the apes. Now, how do we uh, how
0: do we know that? How,
1: how... Well, because uh, it's going to be driven by technology, and we know okay. uh, that. Uh, so uh, we, we are, are developing,
0: speeding
1: it up. We... we are speeding it up, and so any uh, um, changes to humans will. Come about uh, um, as a result of applications of uh, genetics or cyborg mm, technology, mm, mm. Uh, man-machine symbiosis, and things like that. Um, and uh, this can happen on the timescale of technological advance, which is far, far shorter.
0: Right. It's it's interesting to think about that because um, you know one of the things I've discussed with other scientists and also. Uh, mm people who who know Darwin, uh, is that one of the things that's hard about the theory of evolution for people to grasp is simply to think in terms of that magnitude of time, right? That the glacial pace defies uh, our ability to accept these ideas. But then we're all living in this moment where As you say, the pace of technology is not really faster, it's dizzying. (laughs) Yes, um,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's nice to imagine, you know, supposing that some aliens have been watching us for billions of years, uh, what would they have seen? They'd have seen very gradual changes um, as uh, ice ages came and went and as species evolved and the vegetation changed. But then suddenly, a few hundred years ago, they'd have detected much more rapid changes due to the impact of humans on the environment. Mm. And then they'd have detected uh, uh, radio waves coming from the earth, the integrated effect of TVs and radars and all the rest of it. They'd have detected uh, an anomalous sudden rise in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because of uh, human activities. And they would have detected amazingly... For the very first time in four billion years, um, uh, little projectiles leaving the Earth, and going into orbit around it—the right. first spacecraft—and so uh, they would have observed all these things happening in um, essentially a few centuries, which is uh, just, uh, just kind a of a tiny blip. <laughs> blip, <laughs> uh-huh. because the Earth has existed for forty-five million centuries. All right, all right. So uh, things are really accelerating, and that makes it even harder to predict uh, what can happen given the huge expanse that lies ahead.
0: So. So what we're, you know, all of this is, uh, is evoking um, for me is, is also something that you, uh, I think, are very articulate about, which is the way uh, without overtly being philosophical or theological or ethical, um, science, especially modern science, especially something like cosmology, um, raises insights and questions that are relevant philosophically, ethically, theologically
1: Well, very much so. I mean, I think uh, um, we should distinguish the philosophy and theology on the one hand from the ethics because obviously uh, all the advances in science uh, lead to a range of applications, some of which are benign, others less so. Of Mm -hmm. course, uh, uh, we entered uh, this era uh, with the nuclear age in particular, and we're going to have more and more difficult choices as to how we uh, apply science so that we can benefit from it but avoid the downsides. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, separate from the uh, applications of science, uh, there's also the uh, general way in which our perception of our place in nature right. is changed by science. And obviously uh, uh, obviously, uh, there have been very important developments in the last decade leading to the awareness that uh, most of the stars we can see in the sky aren't just twinkly points of light. Uh, Most of them are orbited by a retinue of planets, just as the uh, sun is orbited by uh, the Earth and the other planets we're familiar with, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, etc. And this, of course, uh, uh, makes the night sky much more interesting, but also opens up the question of whether on any of these other planets uh, life got started, Mm -hmm. um, as it did here on Earth, and whether having got started, it uh, evolved in any places to complex life of a kind that we could recognize as intelligent. I mean, this is, uh, of course, a staple of science fiction, but uh, these are issues which are now an important part of science.
0: Right. So not only thinking, uh, giving us perspective on our place in the cosmos, but raising anew the question of whether we are alone in the universe.
1: Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes.
0: you've also made some pretty dramatic statements that you think mankind has a 50-50 chance of surviving the century. Some said this is a scientific version of apocalyptic <laughs> <laughs> reasoning. Um, tell, me, tell me what you mean by that.
1: Well, um, I didn't, quite say anything as scary as that You uh, didn't, uh, alright,
0: that's what was well, reported
1: I said, uh, Well I, I said a 50% chance of a severe setback to
0: civilisation
1: okay. right. I don't think we'll wipe ourselves out, I mean that's very <laughs> yeah. unlikely but uh, I did say in a book a few years ago which was called Our Final Century in Britain and Our Final Hour in America. Um, that, um, that we like something things to happen more. Yes, it
0: does. Our well, sense of time and history. Well, that says something about the
1: difference in uh, <laughs> uh, the time spans that yes. Brits and Americans think on, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, what, I, what I did say was that uh, there were uh, severe threats. Um, and uh, I did think it was only a 50-50 chance that we would get to the century having avoided them all. And, uh, of course, one threat, which we've been under for the last 50 years is of a nuclear catastrophe. Um, um, But another concern I have is that I think the world's becoming less governable because Mm. Mm. individuals are far more empowered – than they were in the past by technology. The kind of people who now design computer viruses may one day be able to design real viruses. And uh, uh, in our interconnected world, even computer viruses could be more and more dangerous. And so uh, I'm worried that a few weirdos or Mm -hmm. disaffected extremists can do far more damage in the future than they've been able to up till now because they are more empowered.
0: Right. So, you know, I, I, I've thought a lot about a statement that Einstein made in the early 20th century as he, you know, to his great dismay, watched chemists and physicists create weapons of mass destruction. And he said that science in his generation was, he likened it to a a razor blade in the hands of a three-year-old. Um, and you know we we can look back on this moment of splitting the atom, and we can see that that had incredible destructive potential. I mean, it still does. Also, incredible healing and life-giving potential. It it, it occurs to me that that, and I, I wonder what you think about this moment in time where we're living through some of these uh, choices and possibilities, as you say, like with climate. Um, there's a great kind of awareness of the double-edged sword of these things um, as they're unfolding in real time. Um, I think what you're also saying, though, is that this doesn't just need to be a moment of scientists uh, taking seriously the implications of their work, but that that citizens, that everyone has a stake in this and also has some power over technology that previously was not so dispersed.
1: Yes, absolutely. Of course, Einstein's statement is even more relevant today, and uh, I quote another one, HG Wells said that uh, uh, this century would be a a race between education and catastrophe, and we've got to make sure that education wins, and uh, indeed, uh, the stakes are higher than ever before. I mean, I think we shouldn't be be too gloomy, because uh, despite uh, the risks and the threats that uh, uh, have hung over us for the last 50 years, uh, let's uh, not forget the benefits of uh, uh, the communication revolution um, and, of course, of uh, improved health for most of the world's people. But, uh, of course, even now, we can see a big gap between uh, what actually happens uh, and what could happen, because uh, uh, we know that the world's bottom billion, living on uh, less than a dollar a, or dollar and a half a day, uh, and without access to clean water, et cetera, could easily have their predicament alleviated if the will were there.
0: You know, in your wreath lectures, you give some, in addition to the, these issues um, that you just named, these huge issues of poverty. I mean, you you named some very practical questions that our scientific devel- uh, advances are raising. That that and and you know, you are advocating for a, a smarter. Uh, more thoughtful public dialogue about this. So, you know, how will lengthening lifespans affect society? Who should access the readout of our personal genetic code? Mm -hmm. Should the law allow designer babies?
1: That's right. These are all questions which uh, uh, the public does need to decide. And uh, I think it's important that scientists, as science citizens, uh, should uh, Mm. raise them on the agenda. Because, of course, the other uh, problem uh, is that most of these issues uh, which are important for the world and for society are long term. And in politics, the urgent always trumps the important, especially when the electoral cycle is short. And so I think one thing that scientists can do uh, is to uh, raise their profile and make sure that uh, the public doesn't forget these uh, longer term issues. But I think uh, uh, we have some good role models among scientists. I think Uh, among the most impressive individuals I've met in my life have been some of the great physicists.
0: Mm. Who 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 do you think of?
1: Well, I mean, I'd mentioned two who I was privileged to know. Uh, One was uh, Hans Bethe, who was a a great physicist who um, died a few years ago at the age of 98, and he was uh, someone who did uh, great work in nuclear physics. Back in the 1930s, he was head of a theoretical division at Los Alamos, during the uh, World War II, the development of the first uh, atomic bomb. But uh, he went back to academia, remained a productive scientist until he was over 90 years old. But at the same time, he was engaged in uh, politics. He felt it was his obligation to help to uh, control the power he had helped unleash, namely the, right. Uh, right. the power of the nucleus. And uh, he devoted his energies throughout his long life uh, to uh, this aim, as did also um, Joseph Rotblatt, another uh, scientist who I was privileged to know based in England. Uh, They, I think, set a wonderful example of citizen scientists. Of course, they didn't have immense success. I mean, I think they are having success because uh, uh, it's now uh, accepted that we should uh, aim to cut down the number of nuclear weapons, if possible, to zero. In fact, right. uh, even President Obama in his speech in Prague last year said, said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so uh, that, that is not now a mainstream idea. But I think uh, scientists should um, exert whatever influence they can, even though they uh, won't always succeed, and even though, of course, uh, other opinions are also equally valuable. To give an analogy, uh, if you're a parent, you can't necessarily uh, control what happens to your children teenage or adult children um, but you're a poor parent if you don't care what happens to them Mm -hmm. likewise you're therefore a poor scientist if you don't care about Hmm. how your creations are applied and so that's why scientists I think have a special obligation to express concern and to uh, to warn or encourage uh, the wider public about the applications of the uh, ideas which they understand best as anyone.
0: You can listen again and share this conversation with astrophysicist Martin Rees through our website, onbeing.org. There you'll also find Martin Rees's Reith Lectures. They give a sweeping view of the past half-century of scientific advance. They're also compelling reading and listening for non-scientists. Again, that's onbeing.org. Coming up, Martin Rees on atheists and the religious as allies in applying science to life. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com with more than 150,000 downloadable audio titles across all types of literature, including religion, fiction, nonfiction, and science. There you will find books by my past guest, physicist Lawrence Krauss, including A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing, and The Physics of Star Trek. In that book, Krauss reflects on the deep influence that sci-fi series has had on the world of science and scientists. If you're a Trekkie like me, you'll like it. And especially for On Being listeners, Audible is offering an audiobook of your choice when you try Audible for 30 days. Find all the details on their website, audiblepodcast.com slash onbeing. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm in a big conversation with Lord Martin Rees, cosmologist, astrophysicist, and recent past president of Great Britain's Scientific Royal Society. He's describing unfolding discoveries and questions on modern scientific frontiers, from the deep structure of space and time to the wilder micro-world, and the most complex thing he knows of all, human life. You are atheist, but very have been very vocal about not seeing science and religion as adversarial aspects of human life. I also sense that you're kind of agnostic on the idea of whether that means there should be all kinds of dialogue. But one thing that occurs to me in this discussion we're having now about uh, philosophical and moral uh, quandaries that are presented by science is that it, to me, it really heightens the challenge also for Theologians, um, religious leaders who are keepers of this these ancient traditions, which have moral reasoning at their heart, to also um, apply those and bring bring the depths of those into our public life in a different way.
1: Well, indeed, I think uh, obviously all religious leaders need to be mindful of uh, uh, what uh, we have learnt about the world and the environment and about. Uh, life through the advances of science, and uh, I should say that uh, um, I am not a person who adheres to any religious dogma, and I think the reason I take that view is that if science teaches me anything, it teaches me that uh, even simple things like an atom are fairly hard to understand. Right. And okay. that makes me uh, sceptical of anyone who claims to have the last word or a complete understanding of any deep aspect of reality. Right. I think the most we can hope for is some uh, incomplete and metaphorical uh, understanding, um, and uh, to share the mystery and wonder whether we're believers or not. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself very out of tune with uh, old uh, dogmatic religions, which I suppose includes all the three Abrahamic religions, um, although of course uh, I can see a closer affinity with Confucianism and systems of thought like that.
0: You know, although I did once speak with a an Anglican uh, theologian who's also a geneticist here in the United States. Who he's an Anglican priest, and he said that he likens the creeds of the church to operational hypotheses.
1: <laughs> well, but some people do uh, decide to um, behave as if some uh, right. something is true, and uh, uh, and they are of course entitled to do that.
0: Yeah, mm. we have a lot of listeners who are atheist and agnostic. And, you know, they have ethical lives and, and they have spiritual lives. I think it depends on how you define that. But they're asking these questions of meaning. It, it, it has felt in recent years that, that it was hard to uh, – that there wasn't much middle ground. There's middle ground in people's lives. But in our public life, right, there's the, the new atheist revival or there's religion. I think you, you are also arguing for some kind of uh, different space – Uh, for seeing the relationship between these things, or at least uh, defusing the idea that the the, the relationship is adversarial. I wonder if you would just speak to that.
1: Well, I'd say two things. I mean, first, uh, there are some very distinguished scientists who do have uh, traditional religious beliefs, I know a number of them. Uh, I find it hard to understand how they can adhere to these beliefs in the way they do, but plainly they do. They have these beliefs and we must uh, respect them and we should not uh, in any sense believe that uh, they're less good scientists for that reason. So we we should uh, accept that there are many scientists who do have religious beliefs of all kind as well as many who don't. But the other point I'd make is that even... Many of us who don't have religious beliefs favor the idea of, as it were, peaceful coexistence. Okay. Um, and Stephen Jay Gould had a rather uh, pretentious name for this called non-overlapping magisteria. You're right. Um, and uh, uh, this is really the idea that uh, you, you can have a religious discourse and you can have a scientific discourse. And it's rather interesting that there was a, a survey done of um, members of the Royal Society, which is a British uh, Academy of Sciences. Oh, of august which I was,
0: institution, which you uh, left. Of which mm-hmm. I was recently
1: president. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was uh, um, a rather incomplete survey. Only about a quarter responded, so I don't know how uh, uh, reliable it is. But of those who responded, only a small minority were believers in a personal God in the traditional way. But uh, more than half of them believed in peaceful coexistence. Uh, So, in other words, um, the sort of uh, um, strident view that one should be hostile to religion, a strident view which is espoused by a few high-profile scientists, is one which they, of course, uh, deeply share, um, but they should not regard that as being typical of uh, non-believing scientists. Many non-believing scientists, like myself, um, do not wish to uh, um, uh, attack um, and deride religion in the same way. And Indeed. Uh, One of my disagreements with these people is that uh, I regard uh, fundamentalism, uh, both um, Christian and uh, Islamic and New Age, as being a real danger to the world, and I therefore think we need all the allies we can muster against it. And I would see the mainstream uh, religions, the religions that have no problem whatever with science, as being our allies.
0: Is not so much a, any kind of theological or philosophical principle, but there's a, there's a way in which there's a lot of wisdom in the history of scientific discovery, which is a template for life, even as you say this complex system of life. So, for example, what I'm thinking of there is that progress in science um, is very is always implicated with failure or with the unsettling, the overt unsettling of uh, of what was thought to be real and
1: true. Uh, Absolutely. I think uh, uh, science uh, doesn't advance in a very systematic way. Uh, It advances sometimes two steps forward and one step Uh, back. And you know what I'm saying? Uh, That's
0: also how life is. But we kind of pretend in many of our other academic disciplines that it's all about that progress is this arrow forward, and science is very honest. Well, uh,
1: I would agree with you that... uh, um, There's a great similarity between the way scientists think and others do. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, pretentious talk about the scientific method as though it's something special, but I don't think there's anything different between the way um, uh, a scientist thinks and works and the way, say... um, a detective works trying to solve a mm. forensic case. You know, you you're trying to assess the evidence and uh, get things to fit into a pattern and decide how to weigh uh, seemingly contradictory. Bits of evidence, etc. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and that you may make may go in wrong directions, but in fact oh, that, that those may and reveal ways towards something that you couldn't see before.
1: <laughs> absolutely, and uh, uh-huh. and of course there are uh, the sort of revolutions which uh, overthrow a whole body of ideas. Um, I think actually people slightly overstate how often these revolutions happen mm-hmm. uh, when we actually have to go back to the beginning. Uh, there are there are some. I mean, for instance, realizing that the uh, Earth isn't the center of the universe, but the sun is, that was a big, big change. And I would say that uh, the quantum theory was another big change. Um, but uh, mostly what happens in science is that uh, um, new ideas are refinements and extensions of the old ones. For instance, I mean, Einstein didn't prove Newton was wrong. Um, Einstein uh, um, provided a... Theory, which uh, had a wider range of applicability than right. Newton, and gave us a deeper insight into what was going on to produce the gravitational force. But uh, but Newton's theory is still good enough to, uh, um, to to program rockets to fly to the planets. It's not been proved wrong, and that's more typical. Actually, uh, science advances, and uh, old ideas get uh, absorbed in uh, uh, into a more extensive field of broader applicability. And that incidentally is a a good hope for science. People sometimes worry about science getting so complicated that uh, uh, it'll grind to a halt because there's too much to learn. Um, It's true that the amount of data is growing very fast and uh, we need computer methods to analyze it all. But the aim of science is to uh, unify Disparate ideas, so we don't need to remember them all. I mean, we don't need to uh, record the fall of every apple because Newton told us they all fall the same way. And likewise, when you understand nature in increasingly general ways, then the number of separate things you have to remember goes down, not up. So that's why I don't think one should uh, expect that science will grind to a halt for that reason. It may grind to a halt for other reasons, like uh, some problems being just too difficult for us, but it won't grind to a halt because of information overload, in my opinion. (laughs)
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with astrophysicist Martin Rees. Do you think so? You said you don't think science will grind to a halt because of complexity, but but I do have the impression from some conversations with scientists that it it, it seems, and to many people's surprise, that here at the dawn of the 21st century, where a couple decades ago, it looked like a lot of – some of these big issues would be tied up. I mean, does it seem like there are more unknowns or bigger ones um, at this moment? Or maybe than you expected when you started your your uh, scientific career well, several I, decades ago. Well, I think uh, um,
1: uh, what happened in science is that um, uh, as it advances, the uh, the frontiers – as it were, get more extensive and new questions come into focus just beyond the frontiers. Um, But I think at the same time, um, some areas advance fast and others advance slow and we can't predict the rate of advance. I mean, this is true in technology, for instance. I mean, uh, uh, when I was young, um, I thought that we'd... um, um, have bases on the moon now, and we'd all be flying in supersonic planes. Did you? Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, well, many people did. And yeah. of course, we're not doing that because there was no uh, economic or social motive to deploy the resources that way. On the other hand, I think uh, something like um, an an iPad uh, would have been thought magic even just 10 years ago. And so so the technology that's led to uh, mobile phones and GPS and iPads and all that has uh, evolved and disseminated worldwide far faster. So in technology, um, it's uh, easier to predict the trend than to predict the rates. But as far as science is concerned, I I think in my field, um, we have made rapid progress in a number of areas, but the one in which the progress has been fastest is actually in uh, discovering planets around other stars. This is a field that didn't exist at all until 15 years ago and is now one of the most lively and rapidly developing fields of science. So uh, that's developing faster, whereas uh, uh, some of the problems posed by uh, sub-nuclear physics have been uh, rather stagnating and haven't made as much progress as we'd hoped.
0: You know, uh, you you very often in in your speeches and your writing have used this analogy of um, science as frontiers of uh, like the moments where ancient cartographers would come to the end of what they knew to be there yes. and they would inscribe there be dragons. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it also occurs to me, just as we're speaking, that right now, it's sort of on television, for example. There's a lot of programming and a lot of it actually being produced in Britain as much as the U.S., um, like this Game of Thrones, this new there's there's kind of semi science fiction, which which also evokes these places beyond which, uh, where you know there might be dragons, and I wonder if I, I don't know I'm really thinking out loud if if that is in a sense kind of modern people um, somehow. By osmosis, as much as education, perhaps picking up these renewed frontiers and mystery at the edges of human knowledge.
1: Well, I think science fiction and these computer games do, in a sense, nourish and extend the imagination. And uh, uh, you know, I tell my students that uh, they probably do better to read good science fiction than second-rate science because huh. it's, uh, science fiction is more fun and no more likely to be wrong than the second-rate <laughs> science. Um, and uh, but 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 I, I think you're quite right in saying that. Um, Many people are familiar uh, through imaginative literature and computer games with uh, ideas of uh, worlds beyond our own, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think uh, this is um, a good thing because anything which uh, broadens our horizons in space and time away from the parochial concerns which dominate the political agenda, I think is a very good thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean even the notion of virtual reality perhaps making us be more receptive to some of these pretty far out things that you describe about perhaps the the, the uh, these origami these uh, rolled up worlds, uh, parallel universes that has always felt like the stuff of science fiction, but is looking more like there might be something to it.
1: Well, that's right, and I think um, also the, the progress of science in the areas I work in is crucially dependent on, in effect computer models in a virtual world or a virtual universe mm-hmm. because we can't do experiments. Uh, we can uh, only do a, make observations, but we can do experiments in a virtual world of our computer. For instance, um, we understand quite a lot about galaxies because we can observe them and we can also in our computers uh, – work out what happens if they're crashed together for instance Mm. and uh, Mm. crashing stars together making stars explode and uh, we can do all this um, in our computer speed it up uh, a billion billion times compared to the real rate at which these things happen so we can actually study these quite quickly and then we look in the sky and see if the output of our calculation uh, resembles what we actually see and I think if we look ahead, uh, then uh, we are going to see huge further advances in um, computer technology and robotics and miniaturization. Um, And uh, uh, this is going to enhance our intuition in many ways. It's an aid to thought. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about us uh, continuing to uh, develop a deeper understanding of the natural world is that we will be aided uh, not just by um, obviously more precise and elaborate instruments, but by uh, um, these uh, interfaces between our own brain um, and some silicon brain, as it were, uh, which are going to, to help us. Uh, and these uh, interactions will become more close and more sophisticated, and I think that's uh, going to be a fairly rapid change if we just think of how much there's been development just in the last ten years.
0: You know, I, I sense, and um, I'd like to tease you out on this because it's not something that, I, at least, I've found you written, uh, written about overtly. But you, you note that among uh, cosmologists, people who deal with the universe on the scale that you do, astrophysicists, um, that the poles—and I, you know—I think again, these poles uh, are what get us into trouble. But the poles are people who say you study this universe, and it's so. Unlikely that everything came together to create this hospitable biosphere that there must be some purpose behind it, whether they call that god or not, and then there's another poll that says uh it's a random accident it's it's an incredible exquisite random accident i I sense that you want to assume a place that's somewhere between those two things but i'm i'm not sure uh,
1: well i i I regard this as a a question which is uh a scientific question, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: not a metaphysical question, albeit a very speculative scientific question. I think we do want to know how much uh, is there in physical reality, as it were, beyond the part of the uh, universe we can see with our telescopes. Does it go much further? Um, Are there completely disconnected regions of space and time? And if so, um, are they all governed by the same physical laws? Or could it be that there are uh, different physical laws so that what we've called the universal laws are really just bylaws. And that, I think, is one of the important questions. And incidentally, I think when we have this uh, unified theory uh, of the very large and the very small and the nature of space, it will help to settle that question because one of the uh, key questions is whether there is, as it were, only one form of space or many different forms of space. Mm -hmm. That's uh, uh, an important question which string theorists worry about and that is very strongly linked to this question of whether um, things like the strength of gravity and the uh, mass of the electron are universal or whether they could, in principle, have different values elsewhere.
0: And do you rule out... The possibility of – or if this unfolded in this way, would it for you rule out the possibility of purpose or of a, of a, I don't know, creative intelligence or was Einstein mind behind the universe? I? Well, I mean I think to be honest, I just don't understand what could
1: be meant by purpose. I think uh, if there was a purpose, I wouldn't expect human brains to be able to understand it. I think uh, it is clear that uh, humans are just a stage – In the emergence of uh, amazing complexity in the universe. Um, And uh, uh, I just think it's far too anthropomorphic to actually use the word purpose. Okay. Um... I mean, I I think uh, uh, um, it seems to me that uh, we uh, are part of this world, many aspects of which are mysterious. Uh, Perhaps the most mysterious uh, is uh, that we exist and are conscious and able to wonder about how we came to be here. Um, But uh, uh, I regard the rest as a mystery, um and perhaps it'll have to await the evolution of some species more advanced than humans to make more sense of it. So uh, it is just a mystery to me
0: hmm. You just mentioned consciousness, which is uh, which is part of what makes us think about something like mm-hmm. God or want to understand the nature of stars. Um, just curious, you know that is I see that as one of these huge frontiers um, of our time. How do you as an astrophysicist, a cosmologist, observe that development and think about its possibilities, Does it inform what you do and how you make sense of it all?
1: Well, well again, I think uh, um, uh, the brain is the most complicated thing we know about in the universe <laughs> and we are just beginning to understand it. And uh, there are lots of ideas, of course, um, but uh, uh, that is, in my view, uh, the sort of Everest problem, as it were, mm. uh, the highest summit in uh, uh, studying the complexities of our world. And uh, how far we will get in solving that, I don't know. But there are many mysteries still, obviously. But again, uh, the point I want to emphasize is that uh, we should not be surprised that there are many mysteries because uh, uh, we, we are just beginning and the world is very complicated uh, and our brains may not be up to solving all of them.
0: Mm. I love this story you told about, uh, and I think this is how something can be gained in popular translation that then can be valuable to scientists. You told a story about Robert Wilson at Bell Labs detecting weak microwaves that are a relic of the Big Bang, but that he didn't appreciate the full import of what he'd done until he read a journalist's description of what he had detected as the afterglow of creation. <laughs>
1: Yes. Well, I mean, um, that raises two points. Uh, One is that, of course, uh, uh, scientists obviously are aware of the big problems, but they don't tackle the big problems head on. Uh, They work on a problem Mm. which they think they can solve. Peter Medawar, one of my scientific heroes, said that uh, uh, no scientists get credit for failing to solve problems beyond their competence. They earn at best the kind of contempt reserved for utopian politicians. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, scientists tend to work on a sort of bite-sized small problem. But the occupational risk then is that they forget uh, that uh, they're... Small problem is worthwhile only because it's helping to illuminate the big picture. And I thought that anecdote about Robert Wilson was rather nice because he made one of the greatest discoveries of the century. But the way he did it was by uh, tinkering with uh, the um, uh, the antennae of a, of a radio dish and making mm-hmm. sure he'd got rid of all the background, et cetera. He was doing <laughs> detailed technical things. And, uh, uh, and he was so focused, obviously, on doing that, because that was his expertise, that uh, it didn't really sink in. What a great discovery he'd made. And, and so, so that's why I think it is important for scientists to um, uh, engage with the public, because... If you talk um, to a general audience, then the questions they ask are, of course, the big questions. They don't Mm. care about these Mm. tiny technical details. Uh, And uh, if we talk to the public, they remind us that the big questions are important. And also they remind us that most of the big questions haven't yet been
2: solved.
0: Martin Rees is a fellow of Trinity College, an emeritus professor of cosmology and astrophysics at the University of Cambridge. He's the author of several books, including Our Cosmic Habitat. To listen again or share this show with Martin Rees, go to our website onbeing.org. On Facebook, we are at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, you can follow our show at beingtweets. And follow everything we do through our weekly email newsletter. Subscribe by clicking the newsletter link on any page at onbeing.org. OnBeing is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Michael Sesser, and Megan Bender. OnBeing is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org and the John Templeton Foundation. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
1: On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production. ¶¶
0: Speaking with Martin Rees reminded me of a conversation I had early on in this show with a geneticist who's also an Anglican priest, Lyndon Eaves. It was an experience of the ongoing conversation he says he conducts all the time within himself.
2: I would say there are plenty of times when I just need to keep religion at bay in order to do my job properly. Um, you know, I mean, to, to to be a thoroughgoing scientist, I am compelled, in the short term, to see really good reasons for not believing the current model for reality, because that's how science proceeds. Hmm. Now, it's a conversation between the past and the future, with a real belief that everything we've believed in the past may turn out to be wrong. Um, Which
0: is really the opposite of a biblical worldview. Well,
2: certainly, if you take the sort of the conventional kind of religious approach, um, yes, it feels very different. But then I say, if you really look at human experience, the truth is that we're all living a life of experiment. I mean, in every aspect of our lives. I mean, you can either think of, let's say, the the creeds of the great traditions, as it were, as telling you what you ought to think. Or you can say they are, in some sense, comparable to the theories of science. They Mm -hmm. are the best distillations of where we've been. But we don't reproach reality treating those models as if they're the last word. We treat them as operational hypotheses
0: geneticist and Anglican priest Lyndon Eves, one of my favorite interviews ever. Hear more at onbeing.org